0: Well, Happy New Year, everyone. So I also want to extend my thanks to all of you for all your texts and phone calls and especially your encouraging stories that you told me uh, with my recent diagnosis last week with cancer. And so we really won't know anymore until we have the tests on the 7th, uh, this coming Friday, so you can be praying that those go well and that we learn some things and we can make some progress. Well, we're going to continue now in our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 and following, and it's printed for you in your, in your worship folder, where there's a Bible in front of you as well. But we're at a very interesting passage, and I think it's one that's always probably leaves us scratching our heads a little bit, because here we find John the Baptist, of all people, wondering if Jesus is the Christ. I mean, like, What's going on here, right? He asks this question in verse 19. John the Baptist sends his delegation to Jesus saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And we think, well, why and why him? But then, you know, it doesn't take too long to think about ourselves. And sometimes, you know, we're plagued by doubt. Sometimes we succumb to demoralization. And why is this? It's it's not because our God isn't powerfully at work, but it's because we're weak in faith and we're weak in our understanding. And without strong faith and sure understanding, we look around sometimes at our world, our lives, and we conclude that it doesn't really look like the gospel is making progress. It's like it's making much of a difference, at least not like we would expect that it should be or we hope that it should be. And so when this happens to us, you know, how do you think that affects our intimacy with Jesus Christ? when we start asking those kinds of questions. How do you think it affects how involved and committed and urgent we are to the gospel mission when we start thinking that way? I mean, doubts about the progress of God's plans in the world really are doubts about Jesus, you know. I mean, at times, we're not much different, really, than John the Baptist in the passage that we're looking at today. And at this particular period of time in his life, we're reminded, I don't know who said it, but it's a great saying, it's the best of men are still men at best. The best of men are still just men at best. And that's John the Baptist on this particular day. So you can turn in your Bibles, I already mentioned, Luke 7:18 and following. And uh, we're going to read it as we go because it's quite an extensive passage, very interesting story too. But Luke's goal in writing this is to move us further along in our realization of who Jesus really is as we read through the Gospel of Luke and what he's doing in the world. So let me pray for us. And Lord God, we do ask that this purpose of yours, Holy Spirit, in the writing of the Scripture through Luke, that we would come to a greater understanding of who you really are, Jesus, and that what it means to believe in you and what it means to follow you more fully. And we ask that you would guide us this morning as we study your word together. Amen. Well, from this episode and this experience, we learn that if we say we're followers of Jesus, a lot of things then have to come forth from that. And one of those is that we have to fully accept Jesus for who he is, who he says he is, what he's done, what he's doing in the world, and we have to follow him without stumbling in unnecessary confusion. And Luke has shown us a lot of Jesus' ministry up to this point, and and he's, he's briefly returning to one of the major themes in the Gospel of Luke, and that's the relationship between Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and John the baptizer, the Baptist, John the one who is the preparer of the Messiah. And so you see, John is in prison at this moment, and that's not a nice place to be, and he's depressed, <clears throat> and he sends this deputation to Jesus to ask some questions. But it gives us an opportunity then for us to look at a couple things. In verses 18 to 23, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be pressuring us to keep on believing. And in verses 24 to 35, Jesus is going to put pressure on us to keep on following. Do you like it when people put pressure on you? Well, Jesus is going to be putting some pressure on us this morning. So I hope you're ready for it. So, do you remember those miracles that he performed? I mean, it's been a while since we've been in, in the Gospel of Luke, but if you, if you are in your Bibles, you can just glance back right before this verse, 18, that whole section. Remember that Jesus performed two healing firsts? I mean, one was he, he healed that centurion's slave from a distance. He didn't even show up, and he just said a word, and he was healed and Jesus marvelled at the humble faith of this man. And remember then he he was on, he was uh, at a funeral procession in the village of Nain and there's this widow's son and he raised him from the dead. And we find out that he's hailed then as greater as Elijah greater than Elisha. And in our passage today is really a conclusion to that story as you'll see. It's a wrap up of those stories. And Luke is now gonna bring into focus the Christological questions, the questions about Jesus. I mean, who is he really? And what is his purpose and his work in this world? And so the first exhortation from Jesus through Luke is to pressure us to keep on believing in who he is. And so it's a very simple outline. In verses 18 to 23, we have this whole interchange. So at the beginning part, we have John's question. So in verses 18 to 20, it's John's question. And then Jesus gives them an answer in verses 21 to 23. Very simple. So we begin the story, and it says The disciples of John reported all these things to him. That's those, those miracles we were just talking about. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one? Who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, our passage really is again a culmination of those, those two healing. First, I hope you see that in verse 18. It's, I mean, John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, they went and report to him these types of things that they're seeing and hearing while he's in prison. And at this point in transition, you know, some of John's disciples are still just following John. Some people, some of the disciples are following John and Jesus. You know, some of them are going to be following just Jesus soon, which is the way it's going to eventually be. That's the whole point. But John's in prison because John had no qualms about publicly denouncing the immorality of Jewish leaders. So that gets you in trouble when you live in this part of the world in this time frame. But John didn't have any problem doing that. And uh, because the Jewish leaders were supposed to be upholding true spirituality as an example for the people, and he spoke out against Herod, King Herod. Uh, regarding Herodias and on many other matters too. Herod Antipas, as you may or may not remember, divorced his wife on purpose so he could marry Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And she likewise divorced her husband for this illicit marriage. It was a public scandal and everybody knew it and everybody was talking about it. And it was a violation of God's law. But John condemned this action of Herod publicly as well as many other wicked things that Herod did. And so then Herod adds to his offenses against God by putting John in prison. But the most interesting thing is that he's actually afraid of John because he just sticks him in prison, but then he likes to listen to John preach. You ever known people like that? Very interesting situation. But eventually, Herod decides to have John beheaded because of the scheming of Herodias. And you can read the whole story in Mark chapter 6 if you'd like. But John is a great example of suffering for the gospel. So back to the main story. So as a result of this report, of this healing ministry to Jesus, while John's sitting in prison, his disciples bring it to him. So John sends two of his disciples to the Lord. And notice again, you know, Luke has already made this very clear, that when now he starts using this word Lord, he means it in its full sense about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And they're to ask him directly whether or not he's the coming one. Is he the one who's to be expected? In other words, is he the Messiah, the Savior? And many people at this time were very confused and had all sorts of different mixed up expectations in their mind about who the Messiah would be, how you identify him, the kinds of things that he would be doing. And it's very interesting that Luke even records them actually asking. Did you notice that? I mean, that's not necessary when you're writing the story down because John calls these two disciples of his and say, go ask Jesus this question. And, okay, fine, we already know the question. And then Luke repeats the question. To heighten our anticipation, well, this is going to be a really good answer. So John's having some doubts about the Messiahship of Jesus as he languishes in prison. I mean, didn't Jesus say that he came to set the captives free? So perhaps it's because Jesus' style of ministry and the lack of Jesus' imminent judgment that he's expecting. Remember, John was quite a strong preacher and preaching repentance, um, expectation of the Messiah's full work coming is what he talked about. He was clearly looking to the fullness of blessing when the Messiah came and the fullness of judgment and the end of all things. And revival had broken out because of John's preaching, a big revival in his ministry, But now Jesus is confusing him because Jesus isn't following up on the revival the way that John is expecting him to follow up on the revival. So, for example, if you just look back, I mean, we're in Luke, so it's very easy. Flip back to Luke chapter 3, verse 15, and and you see this. Now, while the people were in the state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might not be the Christ... John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he also preached the gospel to the people. That's part of the gospel message, you see. So... After somebody who preaches like that, Jesus might be a little disappointing at this point in his ministry. So John had seen a lot at the beginning, especially with Jesus' baptism and the heavenly witness, you remember all of that, and he probably had seen many of Jesus' miracles, but now he's hearing about some even more, and that maybe Jesus hadn't just been completely clear with him about his identity and the way he was going to proceed in his ministry. So the fullness of glory that, that John the Baptist was expecting seemed to be missing, missing. It wasn't happening now. And so he's confused. And you know how it is when you're confused. It's like you go back and forth between two different opposite polar emotions. And so he's doubting who Jesus is, but at the same time he's hoping he's the Messiah. He believes he's the Messiah, but doesn't believe he's the Messiah. So, And he's demoralized, being in prison, languishing there, yet he's trying to understand and trying to understand it all because he knows he's been called by God for this purpose. So that's what's going on in John's question. And then we get Jesus' answer, very interesting answers. You notice how it begins? Uh, Different translations, verse 21, in that hour is the ESV. Many other translations will say at that time or at that moment. In that hour then, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. So like that's how he begins the answer. He says, okay, fine, I'll just do some miracles right now so you can see. And so he does these miracles right in front of these disciples of John. And it goes on, and he answered them, so go tell John what you've just seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who does not stumble over me. That's Jesus' answer. And Luke points out, first of all, these more miracles that Jesus did right in front of this deputation, so they could go back and tell John what they saw. It's it's their obvious testimony, their own personal testimony to John the Baptist, I mean, what, what comfort that would be to him, what grace our Lord Jesus is giving to him. It's a miracle of miracles. The expected sign of the Messiah would be the blind would receive their sight. And his first, first mention is in Luke is right here. Jesus tells these two men to go tell John to keep up his courage, to keep up his faith, to don't give in to unbelief. And he summarizes his ministry so far by referencing his miracles of healing and capping it all off with the preaching of the gospel, which is the main, of course, portion. And we're to remember, you know, that's exactly how Jesus began his ministry in the gospel of Luke. We're back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he references Isaiah 61. And it says, the Spirit of Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind." to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And again, in our present passage that we're looking at, Jesus is referencing another messianic prophecy than just Isaiah 61, but he's also referencing Isaiah 35, 5, which says the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. He's really calling to mind all of these messianic healing prophecies of Isaiah, and there are many of them. Another one for you to write down, look up later, is Isaiah twenty-six nineteen. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to its departed spirits. Isaiah twenty-nine eighteen. On that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted shall increase the gladness of the Lord, and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Then the Lord Jesus pronounces here a blessing upon those who believe and accept His credentials and don't stumble over Him, are not offended by Him, because of their own preconceived ideas of who the Messiah would be. Do you know people like that? That can just seem to never reach a conclusion because they've got their own ideas in their head of who the Messiah would be, who Jesus would be, what a Savior would be like, what God would be like. No other real authority, just what's up in their own head, not what's in Scripture. You see, that's why people stumble over Jesus because it's not like it's not clear. I mean, this too, this whole idea of stumbling was prophesied by by many in the Old Testament, and preached and picked up in the New Testament by the apostles Peter and Paul. In Isaiah, again, 8.14, it says, then he, speaking of the Messiah, shall become a sanctuary. But to those of the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Apostle Paul in Romans 9.33 picks it up, just as it is written, he says, and he quotes Isaiah 26.8. 28:16 and Isaiah 8, 14, and he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and following, the Apostle Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness, but to the called, both among the Jews and the Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.18 says that he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. And then he goes on, but you who believe are blessed. And so, it's also intended as a warning to be careful about one's messianic notions. Are they really true or just some ideas? How about your notions about the Messiah and what he would do? You know, do you stand in judgment over Jesus? Or does Jesus stand in judgment over you? There's a very clear answer from Jesus. He gives miracle proofs and prophecy proofs. And the Lord Jesus declares that he is the coming one. But he's also making it really, really, really clear. Not just to John the Baptist, but to us today still. That now is the time for the gospel to advance. It's not the end yet. You see, that's where you can get yourself really messed up. Now is the time to proclaim the gospel. It's not the end yet. So Jesus is pressuring us to keep on believing in him and what he's accomplished on his cross and his resurrection, what he's preached, what he's doing in the world right now from heaven, and to be a part of that. So we've admired John the Baptist all along, his preaching, his example. And so we don't like to see him this way. I mean, it's really embarrassing to see like a spiritual hero questioning and doubting. And it makes us realize, you know, it doesn't just happen to strong ones, it happens to us too, because everyone in this room, I think we all qualify as weak ones, including myself. None of us are like John the Baptist. But we see that our expectations, if they're not thoroughly biblical, can cause us to stumble. And if you think about that, that applies in so many areas of our lives. I mean, isn't that what brings so much disappointment into our Christian life to begin with, is wrong expectations? that we sort of make them up in our minds about this is the way the Christian life ought to be, this is how my life ought to be, this is how other people's lives ought to be, and we have all these expectations, and if God doesn't meet those expectations, then we start doubting. And then to add to that, you know, there's a whole host of false teachers and really goofy preachers around there. You know, you can find them on any show, any day of the week, right? And they just add to the confusion and mess you up because they tell you that your life is supposed to be, like, good all the time. John struggles, though, through this very appropriately. He seeks an answer from the Lord himself, and he would believe Jesus, and he'd be strengthened again, and he would be a faithful martyr for the cause of the gospel. So we're to believe and not remain confused. Don't be offended or stumble because of what we see going on or not in the world. Luke would have us keep on believing when he wrote his gospel letter, even though we don't see the world the way we want to see the world, the way the world will be when Jesus returns. We have to trust in God's timetable for the end. And for now, just be faithful in the age we live in, which is the age of advancing the gospel. That's our job. It's a pretty simple job. Just do the job. So if we say we're followers of Jesus, we have to fully accept him for who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, not what we want him to do. We have to accept him for what he's doing now and follow him and not be unnecessarily confused by all these expectations that float around us that are false or that come into our own minds. We have to fight against them. So first of all, Jesus pressures us to just keep on believing in him and what he's doing in this world right now, even today, and what he'll be doing in 2022. The second exhortation from Jesus, though, through Luke is to prepare, pressure us to keep on following in verses 24 through 35. And so this section we just got done was a very private conversation, you realize. you know, It was between these two disciples and Jesus. Now, obviously, there's people getting healed and stuff, but it's a, but it's a very localized conversation, and, and he's sending them back to John in prison to tell the stories. Well, now it prompts Jesus to instruct all the crowds that are around about who He is and who John is, and, and uh, this is a very interesting section. So, Jesus begins by interrogating the people, very winsome way to preach, right? He interrogates the people. So, verses 24 to 28, and then we find there are really actually two groups of people in 29 30, and then we get to what I think is probably my, my favorite parable in the Bible. One uh, scholar entitled it, The Parable of the Brats. You know, like bratty children? It's the parable of the brats. I love this parable. So, wait till we get to that one in verse 31. But first, Jesus decides to interrogate the crowds. So, they're all watching. They know what's going on and what the questions are. No one, um, it's pretty hard to keep secrets. So, when John's messengers had gone... Uh, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Then, well, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live live in luxury are in king's courts. Well, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus reminds the crowd about John the Baptist and his revival ministry. You know, it's over because Jesus is on the scene. You know, John was a spectacle, people wanted to go out and observe him. But he was way more than that, and people knew that. But, you know, there are all these spiritual looky-loos, rubbernecks, whatever you want to call them. You know, they never get saved. You ever notice that? Spiritual looky-loos. People just sort of show up because, oh, there's spiritual stuff going on, and I'm a spiritual person, and they just sort of observe, but they never really take it down deep into their heart and believe in Jesus Christ. They never get saved. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. What would you go out there to do? Just watch him? Or did you go out there to believe him? And to actually get baptized? I hope you're not one of those types. John was not, was not a weak man. John was one of strong conviction. And more than that, he spoke with divine authority. He wasn't from among the elite type of people, the refined people. He was a wild, prophet-like person. And he lived a very rigorous life, rare holiness, real holiness. And now he sits in prison for the sake of the truth of his message, and Jesus is calling on the crowd to make good on their decision to be drawn to John and accepting his revival message. And in a sense, he's saying to them, says, you better keep on following John by following me. You decide what you're going to do. Well, John was a true prophet, and more he was prophecy, he was the the messianic forerunner, Jesus quotes Malachi 3, 3, chapter 3, verse 1, and applies it to the coming of John, the Baptist, and himself. And it says in Malachi 3, 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's a little bit of a preview here. You see, the rest of Malachi 3, it's still coming up in the book. We'll see Jesus suddenly come to his temple. We'll see what he does when he gets there and what other things will happen. But John the Baptist was a prophet preparing the Israelites in repentance and faith and hope in their Messiah, and he gave give people knowledge of spiritual salvation and how they needed their sins forgiven, and the only way that's going to happen is it's only going to happen when the Messiah gets here. And Jesus makes it clear how elevated John is in the purposes of God. I mean, no one, Jesus, you see what Jesus says about John the Baptist? In the history of redemption, no one has had such a privileged status as John the Baptist. I mean, it's like, can you imagine Moses and Elijah being jealous? I mean, of course, they're not at this time because they're in heaven, you know, rejoicing over what John the Baptist is doing, right? So they're all excited about it. But it's a privileged status because, humanly speaking, John is the figure, the transitional person between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He would be the one who gets to announce the coming of the Messiah. What a privileged position. And the coming of the kingdom of God with him. And yet, Jesus goes on and says, even the least in the kingdom, that is those that enter into it in its new stage of fulfillment with him coming, is greater than John the Baptist. That means even the weakest of believers in Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. In other words, those who enter by faith in the Messiah now enter into blessings that are far superior than before. You see, in other words, it's greater to be a participant in something than to just be somebody who announces something. And John the Baptist only announced it, but we get to participate. If John was so privileged, how can we grasp this? How great are privileges of this fulfillment in our stage of redemption? I mean, it's greater than everything that's gone on before. And sometimes we dream and we read about these things and we think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of the patriarchal age and Abraham and travel with him? No, this is better. Living in 2022 is way better than traveling with the patriarchs. We might be thinking like, oh, wouldn't it be awesome to cross the Red Sea in the Exodus? Well, yeah, it'd be awesome but that's nothing compared to living in 2022. I mean, this is way better than that. We get to preach the gospel to people in fullness of knowledge of what's actually happened. We might be thinking things like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be under a righteous king, a righteous political leader like David? Oh, wouldn't that just be like heaven on earth? Well, someday it will be when it's actually Jesus. But until then, it's never going to be. But even under King David, right? I mean, no, this is way better than that. You know, living in 2022 as part of the church, oh, this is like the best time in, the, in, the, in your life to be alive. Best time in the history of the world so far. And you think about other things that happened too and the reestablishment under, I mean, Zerubbabel and Ezra and the rebuilding and the coming back out of, out of, the, of, out of exile. That was a really cool time. I mean, you read those stories. This is way better than that to live in this time frame When we know who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God and uh, the one who died for our sins and we get to proclaim the gospel, that's way, way better. And the only way you're going to grasp it, the only way you're going to grasp that, I mean, intellectually, okay, fine, maybe it makes some sense to you today, maybe, hopefully it does, but the only way we're really going to get it is we have to read through the New Testament with that in our minds. And we're going to encounter in the Gospel of Luke the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit eventually, and we read in his second volume about the worshipful church and how it's now on a worldwide mission with the gospel until Jesus comes back. We have to understand our role in the history of redemption. It's so much more glorious. Our privilege in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us greater prophets than John. You have the potential to be a greater prophet than John the Baptist if you tell people about Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be a professional to do it. All you got to do is be the least in the kingdom. That's pretty easy to be the least. Yeah. That's all you got to be. And you can tell people about Jesus. And there, there are two groups in the fallout here very quickly. Now, it's parenthetical, and Luke's uh, probably by your editors it's parenthetical here but it is a parenthetical comment by Luke and says, well, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So it gives these two different groups of people. I mean, one group took to heart John's message initially and they do so again now that Jesus is urging them to. And the other group didn't believe John initially anyway. And they still don't believe, even though Jesus is telling them to. So largely this first group of people, you know, it's, it's the general populace. It's people who automatically, it seems, well, of course it's because the Spirit's working in their hearts, they know they're sinful people. And, you know, you've got these despised tax collectors which are, you know, really have just sort of given themselves over to the, the enemies of the people of God. All the other outcasts, of course, we know. They acknowledged Jesus' words. They accepted God's purposes. They accepted what John had to say and God's justice. And they repented of their sins when John preached his message. And notice how they're marked here. They're marked out as the ones who got baptized by John. They submitted their life. They submitted their life to God's purposes. But largely the Pharisees, the scribes, the self-righteously, righteous people, they rejected Jesus' words. They rejected God's purposes for Israel and themselves by rejecting both people's messages. They rejected John and they rejected Jesus. And they didn't repent of their sin when they went out to see John anyway because he was a spectacle to them and they were busy doing other things with all sorts of sinister motives, we read. And they don't believe in Jesus. You remember John's words earlier? He had special words for these people. It goes for all self-righteous religious types of people. This is what John the Baptist said to them in Luke 3. He said, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And notice how these people are marked out. They're marked out as those who are not baptized by John because they wouldn't submit their life to the purposes of God and the preaching of John. It's very important to understand this relationship between John and Jesus, obviously. In fact, accepting John and his ministry, as one scholar aptly put it, it's really a litmus test to be a follower of Jesus. When Jesus is coming on the scene, if you're not going to believe John, then you're not really a follower of Jesus. And those who follow John would now follow Jesus more fully and his whole teaching on salvation. Well, then Jesus finishes up his teaching on John and himself with this parable, the parable of the brats, as Daryl Bach puts it in verses 31 to 35. And he says, to what then do I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? Well, they're like children. Sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, Well, he's a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself, has come eating and drinking. And you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Friend front of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This parable is about this generation, Jesus says. It means all the unbelieving Jewish people at the time. There must have been quite a many of them, if he's just going to say the whole generation. He could reference them that way, and he compares them to children playing in the marketplace that are just a bunch of brats. They are just children who want things to go their own way. You know, and they wouldn't put up with it any other way because they want to play their own little game. I mean, you know these people. They're still around. Self-righteous religious people. That's who we're talking about. You ever met any? Religious critics. You ever met any of those people? Yeah. You ever met anybody who thinks they're holier than other people? Yeah. That's who he's talking about, those people. And so there are two main ways you can take this parable. One is that you got two groups in mind, and and sort of one is calling out to the other group. Or you can read the parable another way, which is probably the better way, is to really understand that there's one large group of children, and they just can't make up their mind on what to do, what game to play. And so we read at the beginning here, If there are these two groups, one calling to the other, it's it's the first part then is it's it's Jesus and maybe the messenger's about Jesus or they're playing the joyful music of a wedding and say so, but the generation doesn't want to dance to that music. But then also there's John and maybe his messenger's and they play mournful music like a funeral. And say so, oh, but the generation, they don't want to dance to that tune either. They don't want to play either game of gods. They're just being difficult. They're just being spiritual, religious brats. The unbelieving generation refuses to go along with God's unfolding plan of redemption. Another way, perhaps better, to understand the parable is that we've got one large group of children that just can't make up their minds on what kind of game they're going to play. I mean, you've seen children do that, right? You've seen adults do that? Oh, that's disgusting. But they, adults act like children sometimes too. So whatever God's plan is, they decide to be difficult and complain about God's plan, and they want something different. And so the children say, well, we played the wedding tune for John, but, you know, he wouldn't play along. And so they rejected him. I mean, think about it anyway. I mean, who wants to hang out with a guy? wear itchy clothing, and eat locusts and honey. I mean, I've eaten locusts before. At first, they taste sort of good because they're crunchy. But there's just too much goo in the middle, you know? So, but I mean, so they lie about him. And they say he's a demoniac. That's what people do when they don't like people. They just make up these really elevated words and lie about them. Oh, then they they played a funeral dirge for Jesus, But, you know, Jesus wouldn't play along with the funeral dirge. So they reject him, too. and because he's not holy enough. I mean, my goodness, this guy goes to parties. I mean, John didn't go to parties. Jesus goes to parties with disgusting people who actually sit around and eat and drink. And so they don't like him. Well, obviously, if Jesus is there, well, then he must be a glutton and a drunkard just like everybody else they lie about him too. So regardless of the precise interpretation, both could be true, they are true anyway, we get the point. John lived a very ascetic life, a holy life, and he called people to repentance. And many people wouldn't believe him, and they called him a demon-possessed, deranged man. He was just too radical in the separation. And, you know, these people, these religious people, they wanted a little more joy in the religion, at least they said so, but they actually were just pretenders anyway. And Jesus, you see, is calling everybody's bluff. You see, that's what he's doing here. And so then Jesus goes on and he talks about himself, his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. It's a messianic title, it comes from the book of Daniel. So he talks about himself and he says, you know, he lived an open, joyful, celebratory life. I mean, it was a holy life. But many wouldn't believe and they called him a, a drunken, glutton, an apostate. He's too radical in his loose living, and they preferred, they preferred more sobriety in their religion, so they say. And I'm reading a really good book this year. I'm about halfway, well, I started it last year, but I'm about halfway done with it by a guy named Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. I recommend the book to everybody to get the book. But there's this one phrase in there a couple weeks ago that caught my attention. So speaking about Jesus hanging out with people that need Jesus, I mean, what a concept! He says in the book, he says uh, that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Is only contemptible to those who feel feel themselves to not be in that category. Did you get that? Jesus is a friend. That Jesus is a friend of sinners is only contemptible to those people who don 't consider themselves to be in that category. These criticisms of course aren 't valid. Um, you know I mean these religious critics I mean they're just they're just like a bunch of little children who make up things. The real issue is they weren't committed to belief in their hearts and so they were critical. They only pretended to want to follow God and God is calling their bluff and God used two men to call their bluff. He used John the Baptist to call their bluff first time. And uh, and the second time, he uses Jesus to call their bluff. And then Jesus ends the whole parable with the statement that wisdom is vindicated by all her children, speaking of himself, primarily. But he's saying this means that God, personified here by wisdom, is vindicated by all his true followers and the outcomes of their lives. That God's plans are vindicated as wise plans by all his true followers and the outcomes. I mean, we say we want to be like Jesus. Well, it's pretty obvious what Jesus did here. Believers in John and in Jesus prove God and his ways that are true, and the rest are just religious liars and hypocrites and self-righteous people, those types. But as Christians, you know, our very lives, our very life, witnesses to the truth of the gospel, don't you want to be known like Jesus, as a friend of sinners? A friend. That means that the people who need Jesus want to have you as a friend. They like hanging out with you. They invite you to their parties, but at the same time, they know there's something so different about you, and they want to know what that is. What an opportunity is before us to hang out and to do what Jesus did, and Jesus hung out with people who needed Jesus. Thursday night, this week, Linda and I got invited to one of those parties, and guess what we did? We went to the party. You don't like that? Too bad. You're a spiritual brat. Because that's what Jesus did. In fact, I think I saw him out of the corner of my eye. But you know, what an opportunity is before us as people. There are so many people that need friends and that need Jesus. And here we are as believers. So go hang out with those people. In fact, that's a homework assignment. You can do it right now. Just make a list of people who need Jesus that you hang out with. Now, it doesn't count if they're your relatives. Okay. It also doesn't count if you work with them. It only counts if you hang out with them. I'll let you define hang out. Okay? So, but make a list of those people. And how you can hang out with them more this coming year and become a friend to people who need Jesus. Because that's why we're here. And that's what Jesus came to do. And don't worry about those religious critics and those spiritual brats that are out there because Jesus already gave you the conclusion of the story, wisdom is vindicated by her many children. The results will prove your actions to be righteous and the ones that God wants you to perform. And I know that some of us might not have anybody on our list. But you know what? It's best to face the truth, and that's okay. So maybe just think of one or two people that you could start hanging out with that need Jesus. Go do something fun. It doesn't need to be anything scary, And you don't have to share the gospel every time you talk to them, because then you won't get invited back, okay? So be measured. Be a normal person. And talk to people about Jesus. That's who they want to talk to. So Jesus pressures us to keep on following him and doing the things that he does. For those of us that already have believed, you know, we're called to keep on following and to to realize that we're his instruments of vindication, vindication of divine wisdom. And he uses us for his glory. I mean, how do you think people get saved? They get saved because other people go tell them about Jesus. That's the only way they're going to find out. So we have to do it. And so from today's perspective here, you know, obviously we look at the story that we're reading in Luke, and we say, well, John the Baptist is long gone. And Jesus is long fulfilled so much. Yet here the Scripture serves as a wonderful opportunity, again, to repent and be forgiven and be changed and maybe that's you this morning, that you need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins and was raised from the dead, that you might be justified in God's sight. And as a Christian, maybe you need to grow to be more like Jesus today. And if you describe yourself as a seeker, well, God is offering you exactly what you're looking for. That's Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the deepest satisfaction your soul will ever find. So believe and keep on believing. Show yourself to be a true seeker, not just in name only, but seek Jesus and keep seeking after him. Now at the beginning of this morning, we made an observation about John the Baptist's moment of spiritual depression, and we realized that we too might have moments of spiritual depression in our lives, and if you haven't had a moment of spiritual depression, just wait, it's coming you know, and actually some of my favorite theologians will even talk about the fact that that's actually a sign of grace, that you're actually saved, is that you go through those things, because God wants to make Jesus even more precious to you. So we thought about how this negatively affects our intimacy with Christ, our engagement with the mission. Jesus' answers to John's situation is the perfect answer for us, too, in those times of spiritual depression. You notice his answer, it has a few different parts to it. One is, just consider the Old Testament Scriptures again. But consider them from my perspective, Jesus would be saying. Second of all, He would be saying things like, well, look at what I'm doing and fulfilling them. I mean, for us, it's, it's look at what I did. It's all recorded for you. I mean, the, these original, original people and the original audience You know, the original people didn't have that, but it's all recorded for us, and we have so much more, all of the New Testament. And we can understand the cross and the resurrection and the spirit and the the return more clearly that's coming. And then we should accept the way that Jesus is bringing about his purposes in the world. He's putting pressure on us as followers to keep on believing all the more, keep on following all the more. And perhaps some of us here are languishing in varying degrees of despair, Maybe there are areas in your life that you've just given up on. Or you've decided it's just best to be bitter, or easiest to be bitter about certain points and things in your life, and you've poisoned your Christian walk because of that. I've known many people like that, and it's really sad because sorrow just gets multiplied upon itself. So this passage is saying, don't stumble. Don't get tripped up. Just because Jesus isn't fulfilling your expectations the way you want him to. for what you think your Christian life should be like, what you think your church should be like, what you think your work should be like, what you think your family should be, what you think your nation ought to be. Jesus is the Lord. Put your full faith in him instead, and you'll be absolutely blessed. So back to the larger story of the history of redemption, we learn that it's progressing exactly according to plan, perfectly according to God's plan, His power and His wisdom. And Jesus has made it clear to John, and Luke is now making it clear to the church, that now is the time for the advancement of the gospel. It is not time to just simply hold out until the very end of time. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come from heaven to earth, that you, the eternal Son, would take upon yourself our human frailty, body and soul, yet without sin, and would offer yourself up as the perfect sacrifice for us to take away our sins completely, to cause us to be able to stand justified before God the Father. We thank you for the Spirit that you place within us, that we have faith that continues to grow and a life that continues to model itself after you. For likeness is our goal, as the Scriptures say. And we pray this morning that you would apply the Scripture to each of us in personal ways throughout this week that would help us to walk more faithfully and to believe more strongly. Amen.